Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 1, 10 through 17. The word of God speaks to us. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. This is God's word to us. Thanks be to God. Hey, good morning. Mallory, great job. Can we give her a hand for that? She, she got stuck. Mallory's one of our students, and she got stuck reading like one of the tougher passages with weird names, so great job on that. Uh, hey, it's so good to be with you guys today. Kids, it is so fun to have you in the room Uh, You are way more cool than your parents. You are way better looking and way more fun to hang out with. Uh, So listen, you don't have to really listen to me. You can just do your thing. Uh, We're glad that you're in here, and uh, we know that you listen better than your parents do anyway. So it's good to see you. If uh, if we've not had the chance to meet, my name is Andrew, and I get to serve as one of our pastors here, and we are all kind of trying to figure out where we are with uh, faith and belief. Some of us are coming in not sure what we believe. Others of us are coming in having walked with Jesus for a long, long time. Some of you are in a place where you're asking really good questions. So wherever you are, we're glad that you're here and uh, nothing's off limits. You can ask whatever you want. And we're excited to dig back into this book. We kicked off a new series last week on 1 Corinthians, and we're going to take the next 40 weeks or so to work our way just verse by verse through this new book. So uh, with that in mind, here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love to just have you pray for me, and I'm going to pray for you, and let's ask God to shape us by his word today. So Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift that it is to gather with the church and to be reminded of things that we've forgotten or things that we've not lived into or ways that we need to be corrected. And today, we pray not just that we would read this book, but we do pray that through the Spirit, this book would read us and shape and confront and change us. We pray for the the ones in the room that just especially don't feel like they belong. They don't belong in the church. They don't belong with you. They don't belong in community. Wherever they find themselves today in their loneliness, would you meet them? Would you draw them in? And we pray today that you would just give us a fresh experience of your love for us in Jesus. So come and move. We're grateful. We pray these things in your name. Amen. On April 8th, 2019, I had a really sobering moment. Uh, I came home and I unlocked my door to get into my house. And as I made my way into the house, I was confronted 
by my wife and my kids. And they said, stop right there. I was like, okay. And then they took me by the hand. They led me into the living room and they sat me down in the living room and they said, we have something that we as a family need to talk with you about. And I was like, okay, uh, what's happening? And I started to get really nervous. I started to, like, my heart started to beat a little bit faster. And then I looked up on our fireplace and it had this giant sign that my kids wrote, uh, intervention. And I was like, oh my goodness, what's about to happen? I am actually experiencing an intervention right now. And my oldest daughter, Evie, she turned to me and she said, we've been talking as a family and we've agreed that you have a problem. You tickle way too hard. Like your tickling is not fun. It's way too hard. It leaves bruises on us. This is not fun anymore. You need to change. You need to repent. You need to stop. And then they one by one went, my wife included, started sharing stories of how I tickle too hard and how they've tried to talk to me, they've tried to break through, and I just haven't listened. And so it kind of elevated its place to the intervention. Any kids out there have dads that tickle too hard? Am I the only one? You can expose your dad right now. It's fine. Yeah, a couple of you. Great. Well, I'm not alone. Now, here's why I share that story. That's like a silly story of an intervention. But have you ever been involved, maybe the one on the receiving end or the one uh, the one actually giving someone in your life that you love a real intervention. Maybe somebody who's in an abusive relationship. Maybe, some, maybe somebody's inside of a, an addiction that they don't think is that bad or they don't think is an addiction. And your love for them gets to the point of concern where you're like, to actually not say something would not be truly loving right now. If I'm going to love this person well, I need to address this person on their issues. Have you ever been involved in a real intervention. This was a silly one, but I've actually been involved in real interventions from time to time that were very painful. And the people on the receiving end almost always in the moment don't feel like they're being loved, in the moment feel like they're getting attacked, in the moment want to run or hide or uh, blame shift or explain away what's really happening. And yet it's the love and the commitment to that person that is going to drive that intervention forward and to keep happening. That's what Paul is doing in the, the transition of verses that we're looking at today, because last week what he did was he, be, he began his letter to this church in Corinth, which was a church that was inside of this really well-known city, wealthy city, dripping with money and cash and influence. And what was happening in this church was different than almost any other church in the area at the time, because what was happening church-wide was a lot of persecution, a lot of opposition, a lot of people wanting to, to try to snuff out the church as best as possible. And yet in Corinth, the problem wasn't that the church was getting opposed from the world. The problem in Corinth was that the, the church was starting to look like the world. The church was actually making agreements with the city. And rather than following in the way of Christ, they actually started to adopt the ways of Corinth. And we're living in really broken, really messed up ways. We talked about this last week, so if you missed the sermon, go find it on our website. And you can just hear some of the things that was happening inside of this church. The boundary lines between the world and the church were totally blurred and completely confused. And now Corinth looked like the city in every way. And so Paul, he opens up his letter and he's actually starting with grace upon grace, reminding them this is who you really are. And he's inviting them to become who they are. So the scandalous grace is how he opens up. But now in the verses we're looking at in 10 to 17, he makes a transition. 
and he doesn't turn away from grace. It's not like he's like, all right, I gave you the grace talk, and now I'm going to give you like the harsh talk. He actually is taking grace and driving it deeper and saying, because this is really true of you, here's the surgery of grace that's going to unfold. There's this cancer inside of the church, and grace is going to come to you and do some surgery on that cancer. So with that in mind, we're going to look at the way that Paul addresses the issues of what's really going on. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 10. Let's look at it together. Here's what he says. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is like maybe one of the most dramatic powerful appeals that you could give. He's saying, hey, please pay attention to me. Stop what you're doing. Open up your eyes. Open up your ears. By the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, like by his authority, by his power, by his name, I'm appealing to you that all of you agree and that there be maybe no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, what's going on? We'll look at verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So here's the first thing I want you to see. This is the intervention. Hey, I've heard some news about you. This news is deeply concerning me. So now I'm going to stage the intervention. We need to address what's really going on. Now, from the backstory of what we know, here's essentially what's happening. Chloe, we think, was a really wealthy businesswoman. We read a little bit about her in the book of Acts. And from what we understand, Chloe lived somewhere in Ephesus. But because of her business and because of how wealthy she was, she actually had a large staff. And we think that she had business in Corinth. Corinth was uh, essentially the most famous trading port city in the ancient world at the time. So anyone that was involved in business and trade would have to go through Corinth. So Chloe had her business people, if you will, that were visiting Corinth often to do business there. And from what we understand, some of them were Christians. So there they are on a Sunday morning. There they are gathering with the church while they're in Corinth. And they're going to go check out, you know, first Corinth of whatever. And they visit this church. And when they get there and when they interact with this church, they realize what's really going on. And it's deeply concerning them. There's all kinds of divisions and quarreling and infighting and all this brokenness within relational stuff happening in the church of Corinth. So what they do is they travel back to Ephesus and they pull Paul to the side and they say, hey, Paul, here's what's really going on. You should be worried for this church. Now, Paul, we know, was already worried because he'd got a concerning letter from them, but now he's heard an actual report from people who were there, eyewitnesses. They saw it. Now, He's really concerned. So he says, hey, I've heard this from Chloe, and I want to talk with you about your unity. Now pause there for a minute. Think about that. Out of all the things happening in this church, this is what Paul wants to lead with, unity in the church. Doesn't doesn't that sound a little weak, like unity in the church? Think about what's going on in this church. People are getting drunk on communion wine. People are shaming the poor people among them. People are actually uh, fighting over the gifts of the Spirit, and some people feel like they're, they're better than other people because they pray in tongues, and, oh, you don't pray in tongues, well, you're not as spiritual as me. There's a guy in the church that is very, very sexually immoral. In fact, it's so broken that the outside culture is even going, yeah, that, that's, that's gross and that's too far. And yet the church was just saying, ah, oh, it's fine because the grace of God covers all things. There is a lot of things. There are some of the Christians in the church that were visiting prostitutes or going to pagan temples to worship other gods. I mean, this is a broken church. And out of all of those issues, the one that Paul wants to address is what? 
unity in the church. Why is that? Well, here's some things to consider about unity in the church. When Jesus came in his earthly life and ministry, he made a promise and he also made a prayer that are very, very significant. The promise that he made was that he would build his church and listen, not even the gates of hell would prevail against his church. He would build his church. That's a bold statement in the middle of the Roman Empire in the first century when no one was a follower of Jesus and it was the most, the, the least likely of all the religions that existed to thrive and flourish. And yet Jesus says, I'm gonna build my church. Not even the gates of hell will be able to prevail against it. That's the promise. But then in John 15, he makes a prayer. What's his prayer? Father, I pray that the church would be unified, that they would be one, that they would be one in me as I am one in you. In other words, he's saying the way that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have forever enjoined this beautiful, amazing unity within the Trinity, I want that level of relational unity to be at play in the church. Think about that. The gates of hell won't prevail, but we need to pray for unity. Why? Because unity in the church is hard to come by. It took the blood of Jesus to purchase it, and it's easily lost. It's something that you and I have to maintain, and there's all these texts in the New Testament that are calling on you and I to maintain the unity in the local church. In fact, if you just read the New Testament and you ask the question, what are the three biggest sins that the New Testament spends the most real estate on? Here they are. False teaching, sexual immorality, and you guessed it, disunity in the church. It shows up again and again and again. And here's why Paul is brilliant to lead with this out of all the issues that are going on, because you can have everything else right, but if you get unity wrong, then the church is a non-starter, and you actually can't do anything else that Jesus has told you to do. All the problems that existed in this church have at their foundation, at their core, the fact that they were disunified from jump. Why were they fighting over the gifts of the Spirit? because they lacked unity. Why were they unable to confront this man who was engaging in really broken, sinful lifestyles? Because they lacked unity. Why were they unable to deal with the, the Christians in their church that were visiting prostitutes? Because they didn't have unity. Why were they suing each other and dragging each other off to court? Because they didn't have unity. Everything else about this church is a non-starter because they are at base, at their very foundation, they're disunified, and there's all these broken divisions and arrogance and pride that are, that are driving this church and their behavior and their actions. So Paul wants to start with unity. It's a big deal. Now, what's really going on? We, we know that he's, he's intervening. He, this is the intervention. But what is actually happening behind the disunity? Well, look at verse 12. He's going to unpack a little bit more of what he's seeing in the church. He says, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter. That's the apostle Peter. Or, and I love these people, I follow Christ. There are always those people, right? Like, oh, you like Paul? Well, I like Jesus. So take that, Jesus juke. It even happened in the first century. Now, now look at what he says in verse 13. This is really key. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And that I love this. He goes, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. I love that. Paul is like, 
I think I only baptized these people. And then he keeps writing. He's like, I actually baptized a few other people. There may be some others out there too. I just don't really remember. You know, I love, like, you can hear the humanness of this letter. Sometimes we think that Paul is sitting there like a robot. You well, write these words. You know, that's not the way that it works. Paul has a personality. He has brilliance. He has thoughts. He has culture. He has history. He's bringing all that to bear as he writes this letter. He is writing this letter out of his own brain, out of his own heart, out of his own brilliance. And yet, somehow in all of that, it's authoritative and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit to be Scripture. That's the way Scripture comes to us. Then he ends with this. He says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Here's the second thing I want you to see, and it's the divisions that were in the church. Now, it sounds as though Paul is minimizing baptism, but if you ever read what Paul says about baptism in any other New Testament text, you know that he's not minimizing baptism. What was happening here was that even with something as beautiful and powerful like baptism, is it was becoming a tool for disunity and division in the church. What was happening was that these people were actually emphasizing more, not the fact that they got baptized, but who baptized them. That was the big takeaway for them. It's not the fact that they were baptized, but, oh, I was baptized by Peter. Oh, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. Now, on the surface, here's what it seems like is happening on the surface. It seems like what's happening is that they're just sort of fighting over or dividing over who their favorite pastor or leader or preacher is. And people do this today. Well, I read this guy, and I like this person, and this woman has amazing Bible studies, and I'm more of a Beth Moore person, and I'm more of a John Piper person, and I'm more of a whatever person that you are. And then other, other people go, ooh, you like that person? I like this person over here, and I think that person's dangerous because of this writing and this thing and this. It sort of sounds like that's what they're doing at first. They're sort of going something like, yeah, Paul, I mean, he's the one who planted the church. So I'm like, I'm with the guy who planted this church. I follow Paul. Paul was brilliant. Paul was incredible. Paul wrote Romans. Have you read Romans? Like, we like Paul. We, we follow Paul. Others in the church were saying, no, Apollos is the guy that we follow. Now, Apollos was the pastor and leader who followed the Apostle Paul right after he left Corinth. So Paul leaves Corinth after about a year and a half or more of being there. And then Apollos comes, and he's the one that begins to do some discipleship and teaching. And what we know of Apollos is that he's from Alexandria. Alexandria was, was known, like globally at the time, for producing highly intellectual people. Apollos, we know from, from what we have in the book of Acts and elsewhere, that he was a fantastic preacher. He could preach the paint off the walls. He was highly intellectual. He was brilliant. So people loved Apollos. If, if Apollos was preaching, you were engaged. You were listening. And so Paul's there first. He leaves. Then Apollos shows up, and people are like, oh, I, this guy. Forget Paul. This guy, he can really preach. He's amazing. And then others were saying, well, actually, I follow Cephas, which, as we said, is the American name for Peter. And Peter had spent some time, we think, traveled to Corinth with his wife. We find out later in the book of Corinthians that that's what he did. And so here Peter had spent some time with this church. And other people were like, man, have you heard Peter preach? Have you seen the way Peter leads? Peter is amazing. We follow Peter. And then you have this group that 
first it sounds like they're doing a Jesus juke, but they're actually not. When they say, well, we follow Christ, here's what's really going on there. They're saying, we don't need Paul. We don't need Peter. We don't need Apollos. We follow Jesus. We don't need any other leader. We don't need any other teacher. Jesus is our guy. Now, here's what's crazy. Below the surface, this is much more disturbing than them just bickering over who their favorite pastor is. We do this today where it's like we look at pastors or preachers or leaders or churches or movements and we say, well, I'm really of this movement or I'm really of this pastor. I really follow this type of uh, theological distinctiveness or whatever. And that's not always bad, but sometimes what we forget, two things. One, we forget that actually God values and loves diversity. And oftentimes these other churches and leaders or pastors that are emphasizing certain things as opposed to other things is not so that we would cluster up and divide over those things as much as so that we could get the benefit of the whole vision of what God is offering his church. The other thing that often happens where you and I connect to this culture is that often we become more enamored with podcast pastors and know more about what they think and more about what they believe and more about what their heart for the church is and less what your own pastors in your own context actually have a, like their burning heart for you as their pastors. So it can become very common to be more pastored by a podcast than by a physical, actual, real pastor who knows you and cares for you and has a heart and a burden for you. And I just wanna say, praise God for podcasts. If you're a person who listens to other pastors, as long as they're preaching the Bible, I'm sure it's way better than what you're hearing from me today. So that's great. Keep doing that. We think that's awesome. But just remember that they can't pastor you because they don't know you. They don't know who you are. They may be great. You should definitely learn from them, but you, you should also figure out, like, what do my pastors think and believe? What do my pastors have in their heart for our church? What is their vision? What is their heart? What is their philosophy of ministry? And get a grid and a vision for that because we actually do know you and do care for you, right? Now, that's just an aside. That's like a freebie. But what, what's really happening here is definitely concerning. Here's what's actually taking place. It's more than just, I prefer him or I prefer him. Here's what's really happening. In Corinth at the time, there was this group of people known as the Sophists. Can you just say Sophists? Sophists, it's a weird name. Uh, some of you may have, may have heard of this, but Sophists were traveling philosophers. They were very popular, very common in the first century and especially in Corinth. Uh, traveling philosophers, think of these people that would essentially enter into a city and they had a vision for the good life and a philosophy of how to get that good life. And they became very popular and very common and they actually had a lot of influence in port cities and other locations that they would travel around and kind of do the circuit speaking on. Uh, one author, Von Roberts, describes it this way. He says, the sophists, traveling philosophers, were common in Greek society, each proclaiming their particular brand of wisdom for life. And those with academic pretensions would attach themselves to one of these and to the school of philosophy that they represented. It was a form of one-upmanship with different groups arguing for the superiority of their way of thinking and intellectual heroes. And so it was very common in Corinth. If you and I lived in Corinth when Paul was writing to this church, the common question that would happen in the public sphere or when you'd go to work or whatever, the, hanging out on the weekend with family and friends, the common question that would be talked about is, hey, what traveling philosopher do you follow? 
Well, I follow this one. I follow this one. I adhere to this one. Or have you heard the way that this philosopher presents and his vision of life? That's the way that I'm building my life on his vision of life. So what happened is over time, these traveling philosophers gathered large crowds and they were actually literally called disciples. Did you know that disciples weren't like original to Christianity, that these traveling philosophers had disciples as well. And these disciples would become passionate about the person that they were following, so much so that they would even at times get in fights, physical fights over whose philosopher was better. I read a story this week of one group that murdered a guy who was claiming that his philosopher that he followed was better than this other group. So they got in a fight and they killed the guy. I mean, that's how intense these factions and these divisions were in the city of Corinth. So, so hang with me real quickly. I know that's like a historical aside, but here's what's happening in the city. The city is polarized. The city is divided. The city is infighting. The city is experiencing disunity. They're picking the person that they think is the most brilliant or has the most power or has the most uh, you know, wise approach to life or philosophy or politics or whatever. And the city is coming unhinged at the seams, polarizing. And that's fine and well for the city. But the tragedy was that that was creeping its way into the church. And now that the way that the church was viewing their own leaders, guys like Paul and Peter and Apollos and even Jesus himself was no longer as supporters to help us understand the way of Jesus. Now what began to happen is that they were viewing Paul as having his own brand and Peter having his own brand and Apollos having his own brand. And there was this infighting and disunity and ah, they were polarized at every level coming apart at the scene. Now, luckily, you and I live in a culture that doesn't know anything about polarization, right? We've gotten so much better over the last 2,000 years. We're now like happy and we get along and there's no disagreements or infighting among Americans. Like we've really figured it out, right? No, here's what's really crazy. This is still true of us today. Isn't it fascinating that some papyrus and some words that were written on it 2,000 years ago could so accurately and timely speak into our own moment today, it's profoundly prophetic. Uh, here, here's something that I read recently. Uh, there was a very recent survey done by the Pew Research Center. This was done at the end of last year, 2021, and they surveyed 17 countries in Europe, Asia, and North America. And listen to this. This probably won't shock you, but Americans were, quote, the most likely to say that their society was split along partisan, racial, and ethnic lines. Maybe growing up like me, I kind of grew up thinking that we were more unified than we were disunified, that maybe back in the 60s, that's when we were really, you know, coming apart at the seams as a culture, and then something happened in the last decade or so, and we've started to see one thing after another after another where our American culture is fractured and disunified and polarized at every single level. Friends, think about what we've seen in the last two years, even in our own congregation as a church. Polarization in the church over responses to COVID protocols or masks or vaccines. We literally had someone tell us, hey, let us know when you guys stop wearing masks and then I'm going to come back to church, right? So it's like, this is the barrier now and, you know, this is, I'm going to disunify over this barrier. 
That's happened in the last few years. Or think about this. In the last few years in the church, there's been polarization over who you voted for or who you didn't vote for. There's been polarization in the church over racial issues. We've had people in the church arguing about black lives matter versus blue lives matter. And I could go on and on and on, but I'm just going to be stepping on all kinds of toes. My point is, it's totally fine for the world to be disunified and to come apart and be fracturing at the seams and to be polarized on every level. But the way of the world has started to creep its way into the church. And now it's no longer like, what do you believe about Jesus Christ and his church as the entryway? It's also now, and what do you believe about this and this and this and this? And who did you vote for? And what's your political party? And what's your preference on this and how do you think of racism in our culture and on and on and on and on are now we're heaping up the barriers and sadly the church has become divided and fractured just like the city around us. It was happening 2,000 years ago in Corinth. It's happening today still. And by the way, that's not even to mention how we divide over minor secondary theological issues or ways of doing ministry or philosophy or whatever, right? This is a real issue. So I just, wanna, I just wanna invite you to do some internal, like, please don't sit here right now and think about the person that you really want to hear this. But what I want you to do is think about yourself for a moment, and I wanna give you like some check engine light moments. Like this should make the check engine light come on for you if you are someone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. When you can't stomach having a relationship with another Christian who holds to a different political perspective than you, the, the check engine light should come on. When you refuse to engage certain Christians in this community because of their past or current responses to COVID or masks or vaccines, that should be a check engine light moment for you. When you find yourself constantly hypercritical and judgmental of other Christians for their differing viewpoints on all sorts of matters of little importance, that should be a check engine moment for you when you assume the motives of others that you don't like and you withdraw from them, when you start to withdraw yourself from gospel community because other people just aren't as enlightened as you are on whatever topic that you're currently passionate about, that should be a check engine moment for you. Friends, here's the concern here. It's one thing for America to be disunified and divided, and we could talk about that another time, but it's, a, it's another thing entirely for the church of Jesus Christ to divide over things that Jesus died to actually bring us together on. So this is what Paul is addressing in Corinth, and through the Holy Spirit, this letter is addressing in me and in you. That's in me, it's in you, it's in us, right? And that leads me to the third and final thing I want you to see, which is what Paul does with his intervention now he gives us the gospel call. So he's intervened. He's explained what's happening. He's given us the divisions in the church. And now what Paul is doing is he's going to give us the gospel call. I want you to look at this verse in verse 10 and then verse 13 again. He says this, and I want you to notice his gospel logic. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, why? Why should we agree? Why should, be we unite? why should we be united in the same mind and the same judgment? Verse 13, is Christ divided? Rhetorical question, no. Was Paul crucified for you? 
Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is brilliant what Paul is doing here. Real quickly, let me just tell you what he's not doing. Paul is not saying, hey, if you're a Christian, I want you to step into uniformity. Paul or the Bible does not value uniformity. To be a Christian doesn't mean that we all have to look alike, we all have to dress alike, praise God. We all have to shop at Mardell every Monday. We all have to like, you know, sing the same songs and do the same things and believe the same ways and have the same political party and have the same this or that. No, no, no. The the Bible doesn't value uniformity. Actually, we're going to find out in this letter that Scripture values, the Holy Spirit loves, diversity. But what he loves is diversity underneath unity in Jesus Christ. So Paul is not saying, hey, everybody think the same way. Everybody be little robots of everybody else that is a follower of Jesus. No, what he's saying is, here's what I want you to do. The most important thing about you is what Christ has done on the cross for you and what happened at your baptism. These are the two identifying markers that Paul gives us for you and I to base our unity on. Look at it again. This is the most important verse in this entire section. Verse 13, the most important verse. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? What is the basis, the foundation of our unity together as Christians? The cross of Jesus and our baptism. Let let me explain it. The cross of Jesus. At the cross, you and I were all equalized as sinners before a holy God. At the cross of Jesus, it's this unveiling to show you and me that even if you consider yourself to be a good person, even if you try to do more things right than you do wrong, even if you have good intentions, that at the core of who you are, you were so sinful before a holy God that it took the death of Jesus in your place so that you could be brought out of death into life. Friends, you and I are not brilliant people. We're not wise people. We're not people that have it all together. Even if you're the smartest person in the room right now, it took the death of Jesus for you so that you could be brought out of death into life before God. That has a way of equalizing us and bringing us into unity, doesn't it? Because all of a sudden I realize I can't be puffed up. You're not better than me. I'm not better than you. We're equally sinful before a holy God. The cross equalizes us in that way. And friends, the cross not only humbles us, but it lifts us up and elevates us in the same way too, doesn't it? Because the story of the cross isn't, this is how jacked up you were, that's half of it. The story of the cross also and mainly profoundly is, this is how loved by God you are. That you are so loved that he would rather die so that you could have life. You are so sought after. You are so important. You are so valuable to God that he gave his life so that you could come to know him. And now, friends, it's not your gifting. It's not your job. It's not your importance. It's not your brilliance. It's nothing about you that gives you right standing before God. God literally elevates you to the place where you are now in Christ Jesus himself and everything that's true about him is gifted to you. All of his righteousness yours as a gift. All of his right standing before the Father, yours as a gift. So listen, the cross lowers us together and raises us together, but it does so together. And no one is ever more important or better or whatever. It equalizes us together. 
The cross of Jesus Christ is the most profound thing about you and about me if you're a Christian. The second thing he mentions is baptism. He goes, were you baptized in the name of Paul? Notice his logic here. Baptism for a Christian is the truest thing about your identity. What happened in the waters of baptism, and this is why baptism is such a big deal, is you go under the water as one person, but in Christ, symbolically what's being represented is that when you get raised up out of that water, that old you dies, and there's a new you that's created. Now, no longer are you who you are, but that old you is dead, and you live a new life as a Christian. You are now in Christ. What happens in baptism is that you stand in the waters and you actually give your allegiance not to your political party, not to your philosophy of ministry, not to secondary theological beliefs, not to this or that or whatever leader you like. You give your ultimate allegiance over to Jesus himself. That's a big deal. Hey, so here's what this means. Follow me here. This is a big deal. What this means is that you still have your gender, but your gender takes a back seat. You still have your class or your culture, but it takes, a cla- it takes a back seat. You still have your preferred political party, but it takes a back seat. The thing that becomes your primary identity isn't your sexuality, it isn't your gender, it isn't whatever, it isn't your political, the thing that becomes your primary identity and allegiance is just Jesus himself. That's it. So how does that How does that not create profound unity in the church? How silly is it then to divide over things that are in the backseat when all of that died in the waters of baptism? Here's how Paul says it in another letter in Galatians chapter three. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're one now. Hey, so in this room, there's diversity. There's male and female. Praise God for that. You still have your gender as a Christian. It's good. It's a gift, even if the world says it's not. You you have your sexuality. You have marriage or singleness. You've got diversity on political views. You've got different approaches to COVID. You've got different approaches on a million other things. And friends, that should make Thanksgiving with your family profoundly uncomfortable, but it should not make us uncomfortable as the church of Jesus Christ, right? Like, let's let the family be weird. Let's let the city be weird. Let's let the world be weird. But the church actually has no business in being disunified when we've been bought with the blood of Jesus at the cross, and we are now ultimate allegiance, baptism, one with him in Christ. So where do we go from here? Well, just real briefly, I want to ask you as our church, be eager to maintain this gospel unity. Be eager to maintain this gospel unity. In Ephesians 4, Paul says that. He says, here's what God has done. Now, be eager to maintain what God has done. What that means is that when it comes to unity in the church, you have to be vigilant. And the way you're vigilant is not by being a watchdog for other people. The way you're vigilant is by being a watchdog for your own soul. And when you start to get a little bit weird, when those check engine lights start to come on, I want you to notice that and be aware of that. It's okay to differ. It's okay to disagree on matters of secondary importance. Let's just make sure that the main thing stays the main thing. You've got to do that, and I've got to do that. The second thing I want to ask you to do is to discern when to divide and when not to. There actually is a time to divide. Remember, what we're talking about is gospel unity. 
that we're not wanting unity for the sake of unity. That's what's happening in our culture right now is we want unity and tolerance for the sake of unity and tolerance. But friends, it doesn't work when you have that because there are competing visions. There are competing stories. There is right and there is wrong. And so we have to come to a place where you know and you carefully discern, how do I know if this is an issue to divide over or if this is an issue to let lie in the back seat and maintain and fight for unity? Does that make sense? Well, let me just give you a few things real briefly. Like anything related to historic Orthodox Christianity, it's worth fighting over. It's worth dividing over. If it's the Trinity, if it's Jesus being fully God or fully man, if it's Bible being authoritative, that's worth fighting over. That's worth disagreeing over to the point of disunifying over, right? Because unity only can be unity if it's based on the truth in the gospel. So there's a whole list of things that don't make that list. You have open-handed issues and you have, you have closed-handed issues and not everything is in this hand and not everything is in this hand. Sometimes you need to carefully discern, is this something that should stay in the back seat or does this need to go to the front seat, right? And if you need help discerning that, that's why we're here. Get with our pastors. We'll help process with you. We'll figure it out. We'll try to give you our best wisdom and help on here's when you should divide and here's when you shouldn't divide. And here's the last thing I want you to do is realize that you and I as the church, we have good news to offer our world with our unity. Think about how beautiful and powerful it would be for, for the people of Oklahoma, for our watching culture to see the church do this, where they go, wait, so you have different political persuasions. Yes, we do. So you, you, you have different people that you prefer. Yes, we do. So you have different viewpoints on different major topics and issues. Yes, we do. But you're together and you're unified and there's deference and there's humility and there's respect. Yes. Yeah, in fact, we show dignity to one another and we love one another and we bear one another's burdens. And the beautiful thing about the church is male or female, this culture or that culture, this political persuasion or that persuasion, we come together and we lay all of that down at the foot of Jesus and we enjoy something special together that I just want you to realize is actually really needed in our world right now. Let's show the world what Jesus has done and actually display his power and his goodness by our gospel unity. See, the world wants tolerance, but tolerance has turned into intolerance in the name of tolerance, hasn't it? It's tolerance if you read from our script. It's tolerance if you believe what we believe. It's tolerance if you say this and don't say this. It's, but imagine what it would be if we recovered the real word tolerance and we go, yeah, that person says this and I say this and we actually disagree with one another, but there's value, dignity, respect, love because we realize Jesus died for me and I was baptized, so we are one now. With that, I want to invite you. Would you stand with me?